A date which will live in infamy. Both of those projects, initiatives, got off the ground because of the Gare out of the 24 who were killed were Americans who had come to learn in Kevin. I say one million Jewish children who were made to be cut in Whoever heard such beautiful words, It is never too little, it is never too late, and it is never enough. Jewish History Soundbites, bringing alive the world of our glorious past. Here is our host, live from Jerusalem, Jewish historian and tour guide, Yehuda Geberer. Welcome, everyone, to Jewish History Soundbites. This is Yehudi Geber with another episode of Jewish History Soundbites. And this episode has been generously sponsored by Yorucha, which is a program created by the Beis Havad Halacha Center, dealing primarily with monetary halacha, a Bezdin, business halacha hotline. And Yorucha is a pro- program created for business people to be able to study the halachas of the workplace at a very practical, relevant, and applicable level. The Yerucha program is accessible on many platforms, WhatsApp, email, you can check it out on their website. Soon there's going to be a Yerucha podcast. The program consists of several components. There's a Mario Makomos curated for each topic, daily audio shear delivered by a Dayan who applies the sources to the relevant topic, a weekly overview video summarizing the week's discussion with practical application, live Zoom Q&A with a Dayan, a daily three to five minute video, daily halacha program which follows the same curriculum with practical application of the current topic. You can sign up on their website, basehavad.org slash yorucha. And there's more info on their website or by emailing them, yorucha at basehavad.org. You can sign up as an individual or join a chabura, create your own chabura. Contact details I will post on the Jewish History Soundbites social media platforms. And if you're a businessman, this is a program that can change your life, so make sure to join today. We're going to move on to the part four of um, our ongoing series about girls' education in modern times, traditional Jewish education in the modern era, and the growth of it, and spread of the movement. And... um, Today I'll speak about um, the rise and the spread of the Beis Yaakov movement in Poland um, in the 1920s of the last century, the, the second decade of the last century. Um, Sara Schneerer and Krakow and the spread throughout Poland, the rise of the Beis Yaakov movement. Um, last episode I ended off with the early years of Sara Schneerer, her stint in Vienna and the influence on her by Rabbi uh, Rabbi Dr. Moshe David Flesch, the German neo-orthodoxy, and Rabbi Shamshin Erfal Hirsch's works, which later influenced the Beis Yaakov movement. Now we're ready to really start opening up Beis Yaakov and getting the movement off the ground. Now much has been written about Beis Yaakov and Sarah Shanir, 
that some of it actually is even true. Um, this episode does not purport to be a comprehensive history of Beis Yaakov, but what I'm going to try to do is focus on several points in the formative years of of the movement. So it's founded by Sarah Shanir. It's not called Beis Yaakov in the beginning. It, the one who gives it its name is not even Sarah Shanir. The Agudas Yisrael gives it its name a couple of years later. Um, but it's founded by Sarah Shanir when she returns to Krakow from Vienna. It's still during World War One. It's towards the end of World War One in 1917. And she originally founds it not as a school, but as a kind of like a social club for older girls to try to, you know, gathering and inspire each other in different classes about Judaism, about Yiddishkeit, and to try to keep them in the fold. And she did not see much success with that endeavor. And she came to the realization that it was a result of the fact that they were already older. They already set in their own paths, and she decided that she's going to go ahead and start with younger girls and actually make it an educational framework, not a social club, um, through serious education and formal education. And she was going to go ahead and, and start a school, and she started this school in her living room. Um, the exact amount of uh, students in the beginning is, is unknown. There's different numbers that are thrown out, 5, 20, 25, whatever it was. Um, but it's, it does start in her living room. And she's, like I said, she was, in the last episode, she was single at this point. She had been married for a short time, many years earlier, and she was was divorced, and she was now single. And so she had the time to invest uh, in it. And um, and it starts to grow. People hear what she's doing and how successful she is, and she's inspiring the youth and essentially saving them for, saving their, saving them to religion, to, 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 to Judaism, to, uh, and parents start to trust her and send their children, and it starts to grow, and eventually um, other Beis Yaakov schools open up, and a movement is born. So before I, I get into that, um, so to talk about a little bit how it kind of gets off the ground. Um, I, I recall my my own daughter, you know, she attends a Beis Yaakov, and they taught her the basic history of Beis Yaakov when she was in the first grade. And uh, she comes home from school with a story that that uh, Sarah Shanir was walking through the streets of Krakow and someone threw rocks at her, stones, and they were upset at her for opening up the school. So she took those stones and she used them to build the Besyakov school building. So this this, this story that, that never happened, the... the uh, um, so that, that's, that's the beginning of Beis Yaakov. So, you know, I said, they sat her down and just first grader. I don't want her to become cynical, uh, right off to, from the start. They said, first of all, the first thing you have to understand is that Krakow was not Yerushalayim. When people were upset about things in Krakow, they didn't throw rocks. So that's the, you know, the first anachronistic uh, part of the story. They may have done other things, but, uh, they didn't generally throw rocks. Um, so that's, that's you know just you know putting another country's culture on onto Poland. So the the but but also you know whatever whoever the protest was they 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 remain anonymous in the story. So who were these people throwing the rocks or being upset that she was opening the school? 
So that also you don't want to tell a first grader because it was actually the establishment, the religious establishment, the rabbinic establishment were not happy with uh, with what Sarashanira was doing because this was uh, basically revolutionary. It was something that um, I discussed in the earlier episodes. It was not uh, not not something that was um, accepted to give formal education for girls in the traditional Orthodox uh, communities, especially in Galicia. And um, her brother, you know, they, she came from a Belzer Hasidic home. And her brother, who is a Belzer Hasid, he tries to convince her to stop. And the reason that her brother gives is that he says, um, he says to her, you don't want to get involved in politics and political parties. So he didn't even give her a religious reason. He says it's just not, it doesn't, doesn't pay to do it because anything that involves education and new things and infrastructure and all that stuff is going to eventually involve Jewish political life. And you don't want to be in the middle of that. You don't want to be in the middle of politics. So that's the issue. So he can't convince her out of it. So what he does convince her to do is to come with him to the Belzer Rebbe, the great Sadik, the Rebbe Rabbi Sacher Daiv of Belz. Um, who was the third Belzer Rebbe, was the Rebbe at the time, and he he schleps her along, and they and they go together to to uh, seek the blessing of the Belzer Rebbe. So the 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 brother of Sarashenir writes a kvittel to the Belzer Rebbe, and on the kvittel he wrote something approximately along these lines, something like this: that she wants to educate Jewish daughters in the Jewish derech, or my sister wants to educate B'nai Yisrael, the daughters of, of Israel, in the spirit of Yiddishkeit and Torah. Something, uh, again, exact words, hard to, hard to know in the translation, but it's something like that. And then the, the Belzer Rebbe read this kvittel, and he says, says to, to her and, his, and her brother, bracha v'hatzlacha, you have blessing and success. And uh, the blessed, you know, bracha v'atzlacha from the Belzer Rebbe is, uh, is, you know, that's a pretty uh, important uh, achievement because the Belzer Rebbe was one of the biggest uh, tzaddikim at the time. And therefore, it's attributed, and, you know, perhaps uh, justifiably so, in the Beis Yaakov movement till today, that the success and the growth of the Beis Yaakov movement can be attributed to that blessing of the Belzer Rebbe, which is very likely to be true. Um, but on the other hand, it was a blessing. In other words, he did not uh, sit down and hear all the details of what type of curriculum she was building and, and that it was formal education and that she was teaching Torah to girls and, and all that. That wasn't uh, spelled out. And beyond that, the uh, Belzer did not give any real support uh, to, the, to, the, uh, uh, to her or to the school system or the school at all together that she was starting. Uh, not only that, but the Belzerab actually forbade his Hasidim from attending Beis Yaakov uh, subsequently, and as did many other uh, Hasidic Rebbes in Galicia, as the Kedusha Sien, or the Rebbe Halberstam of Babov, also um, did not uh, allow his Hasidim to attend uh, the Beis Yaakov schools. It was too radical, too new, too revolutionary, too different than the tradition. Um, so, so she definitely did not have active support, but she had the blessing. And so... She doesn't, you know, seek out uh, support from any other rabbinic authorities at the outset. Um, it was just opposition. She didn't ask anyone. She didn't receive support from anyone. Um, but what happens is, is that 
uh, two years later, in 1919, the local Agura branch in Krakow um, adopts Beis Yaakov. They decide that they see the success, they see what she's doing, she's saving Jewish lives, she's teaching them, keeping them religious, keeping them Jewish, and uh, inspiring them, and she's a great teacher, and she's... And she's, you know, her work is already uh, proving it. even that, even in its embryonic stage, um, she, it seems to be something uh, successful. And just a couple of years later, when there's already several branches of Beis Yaakov, it's a movement that grows so quickly, it's, it's almost beyond uh, belief. Um, so just a few years later, 1923-24, um, when the Agudis Yisrael is running their first Knesia Gedaila, the first great gathering in Vienna, of the world Agudas Yisrael. So the world Agudas Yisrael, an international movement, adopts Space Yaakov, and therefore they throw their entire backing uh, behind it of infrastructure, of, of financing, fundraising, um, hiring teachers, you know, the, the, the entire system comes under their control. Um, at the first Knesset Gadayla is a, another very important uh, um, um, uh, um, uh, Organization or you know sub sub organization of the Aguda is set up established called the Karen HaTorah, which is to support uh, Torah institutions, support yeshivas, support uh, schools, and and uh, um, uh, you know of all ages and from all countries across Europe, and and a large percentage of the funds uh, which were going to be part of the Karen HaTorah allocations are. Are uh, are to be given to Beis Yaakov schools. In other words, they believe in it and they want to allocate a significant amount of funding toward it, toward through the Karen Hatora fund. Um, and because she was being successful, uh, she was definitely uh, being successful with what she was doing, and it was proving itself, and it was growing. There were branches opening up um, all you know already by now in other parts beyond Krakow and other towns and cities uh, across Poland. Um, now what happens is, is that over the next uh, several years, it grows. And by the late 1920s, when it's over a decade old, and there's thousands of students who are attending Beis Yaakov across Poland, there are Aguda activists within the Aguda Yisrael Organization of Poland, who then go ahead and lobby the Gedele Yisrael, the great Torah leaders of the Jewish people in the late 1920s to to voice their public approval for the Beis Yaakov system. So what happens then? Why is it, you know, 11, 12 years after its founding, when it's already an established fact on the ground, when it's already a well-oiled and funded system of the Agudas Yisrael, and there's thousands of students and tens of branches all over the place, why all of a sudden... Do they need, for the first time since its inception, do they now need rabbinic approval? And their answer is, is because they wanted to silence the critics. There was, there was a lot of critics, rabbinical critics, and and uh, rebbes, and, and all kinds of uh, critics to this new and and what was considered to many a, against tradition of, of this movement. And the movement was wanted to expand. They wanted to fundraise, and with all this uh, criticism going on, it was becoming difficult. So they needed to the rabbinic approval to be able to uh, silence the or at least uh, balance out the critics. Now, so the uh, the the rabbinic approval was never sought out to allow the teaching of Torah to women. That was 
as far as I was able to tell, it was not, that was never sought out actively by the Beis Yaakov movement. But when there, uh, the, the, in 1928, the Ger Rebbe, the Emrei who was, you know, the great leader of Polish Jewry during that time, along with Reb Chaim Gurjensky, who was also one of the greatest leaders, the Torah leaders of the time, together they put out a letter. Uh, they write a letter in strong support of Beis Yaakov. So again, it's 11 years after it's established. And then a year later, the Ger Rebbe writes another letter, a second a subsequent letter. And a couple of years later, shortly before the Chavetz Chaim's passing, um, he writes a letter in support of Beis Yaakov. It was because of a story in Freestuck in southern Galicia. Freestuck was famous in Jewish history because the great uh, Hasidic tzaddik Remendela of Rimenov for many, many years was in Freestuck before he moved to Rimenov. Um, but this is a modern-day uh, story in Freestuck where there was opposition to the opening of a branch of Beis Yaakov. So they needed to, again, to silence the critics, and they were able to have the, the Chavetz Chaim pen a letter of support, and he did, he did so. And that became a famous letter of support as well. A year later, the Lubavitch Rebbe, the previous Rebbe, the Rayats, wrote a letter of support. Now, in, in reality, the Ger Rebbe, the Imre Emes, who was most probably, in all likelihood, the first great and world-renowned uh, um, Torah leader to support uh, the Beis Yaakov uh, movement. He he most probably um, supported it even earlier because it was the, at the end of the day it was Agudas Yisrael that had adopted the movement and was funding it and it was through the Knesset Gedalia in 1923 and nothing went on in the Agudas Yisrael in Poland without the uh, Gareb's approval. I mean, nothing significant like that. So most probably he was a supporter early on, and in fact um, it was many of many of the prominent uh, early leaders in Beis Yaakov, aside from Sarah Shanir, um, were Gera Hasidim, Eliezer Gershon Friedensen, who we're going to get to. He was the uh, edit- founder and editor of the uh, Beis Yaakov Journal, and Yehuda Leib Orlian, who was one of the leaders and later the leader of the entire Beis Yaakov uh, system and the head of the seminary following uh, Sarah Shanir's passing, um, was a Gera Hasid and. Uh, Alexander Zisha Friedman, who was a prominent Agudah activist in Warsaw um, in many ways, in, 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 in many aspects of Agudah Sisrael, and um, lots, lots to say about him and his role in Agudah Sisrael, but he was also um, involved in Beis Yaakov, so he was also a Gerach Hasid and, and others. Um, but the letter only came out in 1928, but the Gerach was probably first and, and probably earlier. So the, the, uh, that, that, that support comes out. Now, what's interesting is, is that, so how did it happen? How did, how was she successful so quickly and, and movements spread so quickly? And there wasn't, even if there wasn't support, but there was no active opposition that was able to shut her down. It was able to shut her out. In fact, uh, just the opposite happened. It became so popular and so successful that it just, it just was, was an established fact on the ground of thousands of students within just a few years. So it, what's interesting is there's a lot to say about it, and um, lots lots to say about her and uh, her success, and the fact that uh, Aguda um, really, really took it uh, strongly and helped uh, build it up and give it infrastructure, and the great German educators who came in early on, Dr. Leo Deutschlander and and Dr. Judith uh, Rosenbaum, later Dr. Judith Grunfeld, when she married Isidore Grunfeld, a lawyer and later a Dian and later a writer. 
Um, she, he was also an interesting uh, man, but uh, Dr. Judith Rosenbaum at the time was the assistant and and the right hand woman of uh, Sarah Schneer and and others. So so there's a lot happening. But what's interesting was recently the, the book that I mentioned a few times in this series, um, Naomi Seidman's uh, book on the history of the Beis of Women. She, she Seidman puts a convincing argument that I that I never thought of, but once uh, once I read it, I it's it's a good argument. It's a good it's a good I know I, I, I I'm not one hundred percent sure, but it it's worth uh, worth thinking about. Is that what we generally think of? Is that the fact that Sarah Schneer was a woman was a liability? And the fact that she's operating in Hasidic Galicia, uh, where women are not supposed to be initiating anything, they're not supposed to be heading organizations, they're not supposed to be doing anything revolutionary against the establishment. So we would assume that the fact that she was a woman was a not liability. And what uh, Seidman uh, asserts is that her gender was an asset, not a liability. Uh, the fact that she was operating on the fringes of traditional society in Hasidic Galicia, you know, what, what, what a woman did on her own was not much of, you know, importance or relevance because it was operating with outside the regular frameworks of the Kehila, of the Hasidus, of the, of the regular organized infrastructure of the uh, communal institutions. And the fact that she was she was a woman doing that and made it that she was operating on the fringes of of society of the community and and because of that it was possible to happen and because of that it was successful she didn't confront anything head on and Sarah Schneer was knowledgeable very knowledgeable in both general knowledge and Torah knowledge and she wrote a lot she had a huge amount of writings and articles and and she wrote a lot on Torah topics and as far as we know, she never addressed the Isser, the prohibition of teaching Torah to women. So the fact that she was on the margin of society, that was worked to her benefit. Um, ultimately, there were rabbis in the 1930s who did address it, um, and, uh, uh, and the, way they, uh, the way they explained it was that it's an Eislaseislashem, there's a Sakana, it's a dangerous time. Times have changed. We have to save the Jewish people. We have to save Yiddishkeit. We have to save traditional Judaism. And the only way to do it is to teach them Torah, to open schools, and to try to uh, make it happen. So um, that's that was a very strong and, and clear justification, uh, retroactive justification for it. Now, with the spread of the movement, the Beis Yaakov essentially has two goals. One goal was to was to, uh, you know, get Beis Yaakov started in as many places as possible. So in the larger towns, in the larger cities, a real real school was able to be established with its, uh, you know, its own, you know, uh, general studies and Torah studies with its own teachers and many times its own building. In the smaller towns, they were not able to start a, a, um, a full school, so m- most often it was an afternoon school. Um, you know, they went to public. The girls went to continue to go to public school, but uh, but they would be, but they would be, they would go in the afternoon to the local Beis Yaakov to get their Torah studies, to get their Jewish studies, and um, and they would provide that in a more informal setting. So at, at that level, when we talk about the children, the goal of Beis Yaakov is to try to get as many uh, girls as possible, to try to get, uh, you know, as to as many as possible. And they did. They got to tens of thousands. Uh, the success beyond anyone's imagination. 
Um, obviously, it's not every girl in Poland at the time. You know, I'm talking about three and a half million, three million three hundred thousand Jews living in Poland, and there's a lot of girls going to lots of other schools. But the the growth and the speed of the growth uh, and the amount of schools that are established within such a short period of time, I'm talking about twenty years um, total, twenty two years. So you know, a phenomenal amount of, and and we have pretty accurate numbers. Not only were were the numbers of the students. And um, and the amount of schools uh, printed in fundraising brochures, which exists till today, but also since most of the, in general, the school system and most of the schools were accredited by the Polish, uh, by the Polish uh, government, by the uh, by the Ministry of Education, so they they kept uh, tabs and the, you know they, they did the regular tests and the general studies and the you know the equivalent of whatever the regents was uh, you know. And, in Poland at the time, so they they did all that. So there was you know there were records in the in the Polish government uh, uh, of 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 how Beis Yaakov was growing as well. So so that was that the, the goal was to, to to try to save everyone, and they and uh, they saved many, and they uh, many many uh, girls uh, from all over Poland uh, joined Beis Yaakov and attended some sort of school, either an afternoon school or or a regular formal school. There's another goal, though, that quick, pretty quickly came into being because of the first goal, because of the success. And so many schools are opening, so there, what happens is there's no teachers. And why are there no teachers? Because this is something completely new and novel, and uh, there are no the, the idea of a teacher didn't exist. Of uh, a teacher for Beis Yaakov didn't exist. So in 1922 or 1923, Again, shortly after Beis Yaakov opens, um, Sarah Shanir, again, she, she herself goes back to the beginning and starts a teacher's seminary. And she, she starts it in her own apartment. She's, again, she's starting from scratch. This is not a school this time. This is a teacher's seminary. And, um, and, uh, in 1931, it moved into its own building. Um, and the, she started because there's, there's simply no t-shirt teachers, and this the institution of the seminary was an even bigger novelty because what it essentially was was some sort of similar the equivalent of a yeshiva for girls. There's very intense uh, Torah study, very in depth, and shiurim and chavrusas and a dormitory and a dining room, which obviously none of these existed in the regular Beis Yaakov schools. So it was completely novel uh, to have it, and and, and very revolutionary to. Uh, to have this, you know, year or two program for uh, for uh, girls uh, to attend, and this was very selective. This was not for everyone. At first, there was the Krakow one, but eventually there was other branches that opened up in Vienna, and another one later on in Chernovitz, and the small one in Bratislava was called Preshburg in uh, in Slovakia, because the Beisiakov schools opened in other countries as well, primarily in Poland. But there was also in Lithuania, there was also in Romania and Hungary and Czechoslovakia and Austria and other places. So, so they needed uh, other teacher seminaries as well. Now, so the, the, it started because there was just a lack, not enough teachers simply. And they would, and they, they, the teacher seminary didn't produce enough teachers quickly enough. They had special summer programs and those summer uh, retreats, they called them. In the uh, you know in the south of Poland in the Tatra Mountains and the beautiful scenery and and uh, became a stuff of legend of those uh, two month uh, retreats where they had a very intensive um, both socially and studying 
I could, you know, uh, um, to, to be able to quickly train them and, and then ship them out, uh, into the field to go out and, 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 and start a base Yaakov. So the, you know, the, 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 um, in this pre-war time when Beis Yaakov is growing and it's still in its, what we would call its revolutionary period, it was about, it was less about imparting the, the family values, which of course was part of it. The family emphasis came much more in the post-war about building the Jewish family and preserving the Jewish family and the Torah family. But that time was more about empowering the individual and connecting them to, to Judaism, to Yiddishkeit. And, um, and that, I mean, the, the idea that, that you'd send out a young teenager on their own to towns to take on the establishment in that towns, to go knocking on door to door, a 17-year-old girl alone in a town far away from her parents and start a school, tell her to take on the kahal, to take on the community to, and to go, you know, ask parents to send their kids to your school that you're establishing in the town. I mean, it's, just that happened in literally hundreds of towns with with teenage girls, graduates of the seminary or graduates of these summer retreats, and that could only have been at that time. That, that simply, uh, you know, that, that wouldn't it didn't and could probably couldn't have existed in the uh, post-war era um, once the revolutionary fervor uh, was a bit more, you know, calmed down. Um, but. Uh, what what happens is is that that in this teacher seminary, Sarah Shneer's role becomes even more dominant. She literally again she's still single. She does get remarried towards the end of her life. She marries a fellow by the name of Yitzchak Landau, and uh, she moves into her own home at that point. Um, for the last several years, unfortunately, she never had children, and also tragically, she passed away at a relatively young age, about fifty one in nineteen thirty five. But uh, until that time, she would literally eat with the with the students. She would daven with them. They would have, you know, Yamim Leirayim, Rosh Hashanah Kippur davening together. And, and they would, she lived with them and she had Shabbos meals with them and they would sing. And it was, you know, the, and she was like a mother to them. She, so the, 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 the idea that the, the, they're, they're in this, this, this little contained um, world, this universe that's training them in a very intensive way to become teachers and then send them out throughout Poland to spread the light and save save the Jewish people. Um, by the way, that building still does exist on Stanislava Street. And whenever we're in the uh, Krakow Old Jewish Quarter, we go down Miodova and then Ditla Street till we get to Stanislava, Stanislawa, Stanislawa, or whatever it is, however you pronounce it. Um, and, uh, this beautiful, large, impressive five-story building overlooking the, uh, the beautiful Vistula River. Um, and you can imagine how it was for the, the girls living there at the time and her, and her kever, the way she's buried in the, was then the new Jewish cemetery in, uh, Krakow, the outskirts of Krakow, the old Jewish cemeteries, two old Jewish cemeteries within the Jewish quarter, but the new, Jewish cemetery was out on the outskirts of Krakow, which uh, which the entire cemetery was destroyed, and the plush of uh, concentration camp was built on it during the war. That's the place where uh, Schindler's List list famously took place. Um, Schindler's factory is not far from there, but her kever, her gravesite is a gravesite is the only one that has been reestablished in the old plush of uh, the old excuse me the old the uh, the old plush of site and where the new Jewish cemetery has been. So we also go visit. Uh, her kever on our trips. 
I even made up a, a, a sgula so the, I can get the yeshiva guys to go. I tell them that it's a sgula to get married if they go pray by Sarah Shanira's kever for a good Beis Yaakov girl. So they, you know, they get, they get excited about it and they daven with lots of kavana. But either way, the, how does the whole thing get funded? Um, so, you know, there's, there's, I think there's a limit, limited funding from the Polish government itself, the, the Ministry of Education, but primarily it goes through, um, Agudis Yisrael, the Karen Hatayra, like I mentioned, and there's a lot of fundraising. Dr. Leo Deutschlander, who runs the Karen Hatayra and the Beis Yaakov, is involved in fundraising. Dr. Judith uh, Rosenbaum at the time, um, and Grunfeld um, does fundraising trips um, on behalf of the uh, of Beis Yaakov. Um, in fact, they even used as uh, when they fundraised uh, abroad, they used uh, they said that we were saving them from all kinds of things. We're saving these girls. They're in healthy frameworks. They're staying secure and stable within Jewish life, and therefore they're not going to be taken in by you know at that time the. Uh, the girls were lured in by criminal elements that they eventually got involved very, very often in activities that was very uh, unbecoming to to Jewish women, uh, to say the least. And they and because of Beis Yaakov, they're stopping things like that from happening. Um, they're they're saving they're saving Jewish lives. Um, but a large source of funding, like many many institutions and and education and many other things that happened throughout the interwar period in Poland, it's funded by the joint. Um, and the joint was uh, probably gave the lion's share of the funding, and people like Rabbi Leo Jung, who's uh, you know a hero for what he did to spread Torah and Yiddishkeit and what his activities and on behalf of the yeshivas and Beis Yaakov, he himself visited Poland during that time a couple of times. He would come to the summer retreats to these teacher training programs and actually speak uh, about education, about Yiddishkeit, and to the girls. And of course, Cyrus Adler, who was one of the heads of the joint at the time, also was involved in uh, in the uh, funding as well. Now, the um, the, uh, the Rebbe Eliezer Gershon Friedensen, who was a young Aguda activist in Lodz, Agera Chassid, um, was was started on his own initiative, and he he uh, later discussed it with Sarah Shneer herself. He starts the Beisakov Journal, and that you know also brings to, brings it together as a movement, and it's a journal that came out pretty much consistently till the war broke out. It was reestablished for a time in Israel after the war. Uh, Friedensen himself was killed during the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, but um, but uh, he was another a prominent Gerachasid involved from the uh, from the uh, from the early times. But there's actually another you know Friedensen is somewhat well known, and so is Yudelev Orlean and uh, and others. But someone who's less well known is is probably the first Gerachasid who supported her, who was uh, a a father of a girl who was one of the first students of Sarshnir. There's a uh, a Gerachasid named Matul Luxenberg in Krakow who believed in what Sarshnir was doing, and he was involved in the Agudas Yisrael there also, and and he became one of the earliest supporters. And, and Sarshnir wrote that because of people like Luxembourg, she was able to get it off the ground, because if she wouldn't have parents and and powerful people in the community uh, supporting her and, and and believing in it in the beginning then it would never have happened. So together, this movement became a reality. And of course, there's lots more to speak about it, but uh, we'll, we'll uh, take it, you know, save the rest for next time. And um, this is Yehuda Geber with Jewish History Soundbites. And don't forget to check out Yorucha um, for your business halacha needs, beishavar.org slash Yorucha. And this, uh, you can reach me, uh, for Jewish History Soundbites at Yehuda at YehudaGeber.com for questions, comments, 
and sources, tours, trips, lectures, sponsorships, uh, virtual tours. Um, subscribe to Jewish History Soundbites on Podbean or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter at JSoundbites, and I hope you enjoyed.